Welcome, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers, and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. Hosted by Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, we continue our intense review of the Declaration of Independence. Judge Warren and his daughter, by the way, hosts a TV show also called Patriot Lessons, which you can play on demand at patriotweek.org, and it is entirely different than this podcast. We are doing this in-depth review of the Declaration because, as many studies have revealed, way too many of our citizens have only a superficial understanding of the Declaration. American history, and civics. And the best way, really the only way, to protect our freedom is to understand the foundation of our liberties. And the Declaration of Independence is the bedrock of that foundation. If you missed prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, please join us right here and now. When we return, we'll continue our exploration of the world-altering sentence that begins, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, unquote. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. Before we jump into this topic, if you want to skip ahead and read about our Declaration of Independence and Constitution in very high-level terms, visit PatriotWeek.org. On the celebration of Law Day, yes, there is such a thing, that was May 1st, we posted a primer on the Declaration and the Federal Constitution. It also includes a review of the Constitution and vital laws of Patriot Week's home state, Michigan. If you don't care about Michigan, that's quite all right. About half of the primer applies to anyone. The primer is called You and the Law. Please check it out at PatriotWeek.org under the Education tab under Patriot Papers. Now, onward with the Declaration. Our Declaration of Independence made America unique in many ways, not only by forging a new nation, but, more importantly, by announcing to the world our commitment to certain first principles that would be our guide as we move forward. The second full sentence of the Declaration is as follows. Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As we have already discovered, this sentence embodies many revolutionary ideas. Today we are focusing on the unalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. Remember, unlike rights or privileges given to us by governments, We are born with unalienable rights. Those rights are endowed in us by nature and nature's God. As we have learned in prior episodes, other nations may be killing machines or oppressive tyrannies, but in America, we demand that the government protect the unalienable rights of life and liberty. And the Declaration highlights a third unalienable right, the pursuit of happiness. Quite frankly, the right to the pursuit of happiness tends to get short shrift. I think it is because of a fundamental misunderstanding of what that right entails. Some just think that is a clever way of saying the right to property, but the right to property is just one element of the pursuit of happiness. If the pursuit of happiness is a body, property might be the lungs, so it's really important, but there is so much more, a heart, a brain, limbs, and, well, you get the point. The people don't just understand the full scope of the right to pursue happiness. And that's not surprising at all. It tends to be glossed over in K-12 education and even college history and political science courses. That we don't understand the right to pursue happiness is a grave threat because it is, after all, a major pillar of American freedom. The kernel of the idea of the pursuit of happiness can be traced through various English and Scottish philosophers. And that story is customarily traced back in particular, to John Locke and his second treatise of civil government. As we have explored in prior episodes, Locke, along with other philosophers, most famously Thomas Hobbes in his masterpiece, The Leviathan, postulated that governments were created by men to protect their unalienable rights. 
in a state of nature because people would have to fend for themselves, their rights were always in jeopardy. So people banded together in societies and delegated the protection of their unalienable rights to the government. One of those rights Locke called the right to property. Now, I want to stop right here and now to clear up a remarkably persistent misunderstanding. When Locke used the term property, he did not mean just what we might think of today. That is real estate, your home, personal goods like your computer, cell phone, car, books, etc. No, Locke's idea was much more expansive. He included in the term property the right to control your life, your body, and the fruits of your labor. In one passage, he explained, quote, man being born with a title to perfect freedom and an uncontrolled enjoyment of all rights and privileges of the law of nature, equally with any other man or number of men in the world, he has by nature a power to preserve his property, that is, his life, liberty, and estate, against the injuries and attempts of other men." Unquote. Did you hear that? Property included life, liberty, and estates, that is, real estate and goods. And in another passage, Locke explained that because one, everyone has a right to his own property, and two, everyone has the right to the fruits of his labor, that when an individual works to add value to raw materials, that the resulting product or service is property that should be protected. Quote, every man has a property to his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say are properly his. Whatsoever, he removes out of the state that nature has provided and left it in, he has mixed his labor with, and joined to it something it is his own, and thereby makes it his property." Unquote. So people who improved on Mother Nature gained ownership over those products and services. This would include inventions, music, paintings, writings, buildings, roads, and other methods of improving the life of people. Think about all the goods and services that you have today. Labor has added to their value. As Hobbes and Locke so vividly pointed out, in a state of nature, we can't possibly defend ourselves individually against violence, theft, fraud, and similar wrongs. So we join together in government to protect our property. In fact, Locke wrote that the, quote, chief end, unquote, of government, quote, is the preservation of property, unquote. Indeed, later in the same work, Locke goes a step further and says, quote, government has no other end but the preservation of property, unquote. Remember, property here means control over your body, your labor, the fruits of your labor, and your liberty. Notice, even with that understanding, there really isn't a reference to happiness. The idea that people had an inalienable right to pursue happiness, as such, had not yet really been developed. But Locke was laying the soil upon which that idea would spring. Over a hundred years later, Henry Home, better known to history as Lord Kames, he was a Scottish jurist and philosopher, started to articulate the idea of a pursuit of happiness in his influential Essays and the Principles of Morality and Natural Religion. He referred to a natural right of the pursuit of happiness. But to be frank with you, it was mentioned in passing in a very convoluted passage, which I will spare your ear. Now, Jefferson owned Lord Kames' book, and some scholars make the obvious assertion that he borrowed the phrase. And perhaps Jefferson did. But Kames' passage was very dense. I was originally going to quote it, uh, but why scramble our brains trying to decipher it? The key point here is that Lord Kames referred to the idea that there might be a principle of natural law, that people are endowed in their nature with the desire to pursue happiness. But in this context, he is discussing it in conjunction with the idea that everyone has a duty that we are all to act to further the happiness of everyone else in society. It's not so much an individual unalienable right than an internal motivation to act. That passage was written in 1751, which is about 12 years before the passage of the Stamp Act by Great Britain. And that act sparked the first real resistance to British rule in the colonies. Whatever philosophical beliefs may have existed before then, 
During the political writings of the colonists, beginning in 1763 through 1776, the idea that the government had a duty to further the happiness of the people was becoming universally acknowledged. But before we dive into those political writings, I want to take a step back into the practical reality of the colonies. Remember, the colonies were colonized over a couple of centuries by many different nations, with people with different nationalities, political beliefs, religions, and customs. But there was a universal thread tying them all together. They were fleeing the oppression of Europe to find freedom in America. Many came to America to be able to worship God as they saw fit, avoid religious prosecution, and escape political oppression. Others came to make riches, or at least to live a decent life. Europe was in the grips of grinding poverty, and at times famine and deadly plague swept through the continent. Indentured servants, who traded five to seven years of hard labor for the passage overseas to America, were promised 50 acres of land at the end of their servitude. Putting aside the gargantuan exception of the enslaved, almost everyone was coming to America with the hope of building a new, better life. Regardless of reason and origin, those who immigrated to America were creating liberty in the wilderness. That, by the way, is the title of the third chapter of my book. They were forging together new societies by their own hands and guts. Dr. Joseph Warren, a son of liberty with Samuel Adams and other leading patriots in Boston, and the first real martyr of the American Revolution, was a spellbinding orator as well as a writer. Warren, who we are pretty sure is an indirect ancestor of mine, summarized the practical reality well. Quote, Our fathers, having nobly resolved never to wear the yoke of despotism, and seeing the European world, at the time, through indolence and cowardice, falling a prey to tyranny, bravely threw themselves upon the bosom of the ocean, determined to find a place in which they might enjoy their freedom, or perish in the glorious attempt. Approving heaven beheld the favorite ark dancing upon the waves, and graciously preserved it until the Trojan families were brought in safely to these western regions. Unquote. Dr. Joseph Warren expressed the prevailing sentiment when he stated that, quote, The colonist found himself free and thought himself secure. He dwelt under his own vine and under his own fig tree and had none to make him afraid, unquote. The standard of living, while often austere in comparison to the higher European classes, was quite good compared to the lower European classes. Moreover, the colonists' standard of living was rising. The colonies began to prosper as they became commercial and trading outposts, as well as the centers of production of raw materials. Immigrants from other European nations, as well as slaves who were excluded from the social compact, began to arrive in mass. The relative good health of Americans was witnessed by the rapidly growing population that doubled every 20 years. J. Hector St. John de Crevigal, who came to America during the French and Indian War, which ended in 1763, observed the formation of the American spirit. Quote, in this great American asylum, the poor of Europe have by some means met together. Urged by a variety of motives, here they came. Everything has tended to regenerate them. New laws, a new mode of living, a new social system. Here, they become men. In Europe, they were as so many useless plants, wanting vegetative mold and refreshing showers. They withered and were mowed down by want, hunger, and war. But now, by the power of transplantation, like other plants, they have taken root and flourished. Formerly, they were not numbered in any civil lists of their country, except in those of the poor. Here, they rank as citizen. Unquote. In addition, until the French and Indian War, England basically ignored the colonies. They were a source of raw materials, and they could ship off religious dissenters and the impoverished to their shores. The colonies were a very low priority and they could pretty much govern themselves. The liberty in the wilderness allowed self-rule, and men and women could be free and grow economically secure. The idea that the people could actually make their own way prevailed. That is not to say life was easy. It wasn't. Life in the frontier was difficult. 
threats abounded. That is not to say that some vestiges of aristocracy didn't exist. They did. And certainly slavery was an unabashed, malignant stain to the idea of self-government. Women had hardly any rights, and Native Americans were not considered part of the people. But for the free, common man, in all of human history, there really was no freer place. In the wake of the successful French and Indian War, which was a global conflagration between the British and French empires, the British were saddled with an enormous war debt. The first spark of the war occurred in North America. In fact, George Washington can fairly be said to be the instigator of that great war. But that story is one that we covered in our special George Washington episode, which you can listen to at your pleasure. Because conflict started in North America, and much of the fighting occurred there to protect British claims to territory and to protect colonial subjects, the British government decided that the colonists should pay for at least a part of it. Accordingly, the British began to impose taxes on the internal affairs of the colonies. Prior taxes involved taxes on imports and on exports and similar duties. But with the Stamp Act, they started to tax legal documents and other papers. Such papers were not effective or could not be sold without the stamp. Many of the colonists saw this as an undermining of the social compact and the requirement that any taxes should be imposed only with the consent of the governed. Again, this will be explored in much more detail in future episodes. The key point is that an outpouring of political writing from the colonists sprang forward. In this episode, we will highlight some of the lesser-known writings that came from important figures of the colonies, what we would call in modern parlance opinion leaders. And we will be able to trace the development of this idea of the pursuit of happiness from the 1760s until 1776. There are two major ideas that seem to be grounded in the word happiness. One is that government was instituted for the happiness of mankind. The other is that individuals have the right to pursue happiness. The first, that the purpose or end of government is happiness, is at its bottom really just a different articulation of Locke's formulation. Locke wrote that the purpose of government is to protect life, liberty, and property, which allows people to be happy. This understanding was what prevailed until 1776. How did this idea materialize in America? Commonly forgotten today is the fact that many resistors to English oppression and local revolutionary leaders were in fact ministers. On the eve of the passage of the Stamp Act, Abraham Williams delivered his Election Day Sermon of 1762, which, by the way, was delivered before the governor and the general court of Massachusetts. In that sermon, Minister Williams reflected the colonial view when he remarked that God had made people social creatures. We should not be alone. He explained that to find happiness, men needed to unite together in societies. Echoing Hobbes and Locke, he reflected that to protect their lives and liberty, men needed society. He then elaborated the purpose of governments. Quote, the end of their institution is to be the instruments of divine providence, to secure and promote the happiness of society, to be terrors to the doers of evil, to prevent and punish unrighteousness, and remedy the evils occasioned thereby, and to be a praise, a security and a reward to them that do well. The end and design of government is to secure men from all injustice, violence, and rapine, that they may enjoy their rights and properties, all the advantages of society, and peacefully practice godliness, that the unjust and rapacious may be restrained, the ill effects of their wickedness be prevented, the secular welfare of all be secured and promoted, unquote. It seems that Minister Williams may have brought a bit of fire and brimstone to his sermon. Certainly not unusual at the time. And he also expressed that sentiment that the purpose of government was to promote the happiness for society. After the Stamp Act was passed and colonial resistance to it had occurred, similar sentiments continued to be expressed. Daniel Shute was a Congregationalist minister in Massachusetts, and served in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention that ratified the U.S. Constitution. He provided colonial and then state leadership for decades. 
During an election day sermon delivered in 1768, he expressed the first understanding of happiness. That is, it is the point of government to protect the happiness of the people at large. As such, each person has a duty to find happiness and to promote the happiness of others. And because people were created to be happy, and each person has a duty to find that happiness and to help others to find it, the purpose of entering into a civil society and creating a government should be to promote the overall happiness of the people. And that is accomplished by protecting their unalienable rights. Government officials have a duty to, quote, to promote not only barely to secure to their subjects the cardinal privileges of human nature, but also kindly endeavor to heighten their happiness in the enjoyment of them. Those methods which will be most conducive to the preservation and prosperity of the whole are to be studiously devised and faithfully urged by them." Unquote. So the purpose of government was to promote happiness. And if the government failed to do so, a person could leave society. Richard Bland, who served in Virginia's Legislative Assembly, called the House of Burgesses, was widely acknowledged as the leading authority on colonial legal history in his age. He addressed the topic in his pamphlet, An Inquiry into the Rights of the British Colonies. He wrote that people can leave society, if they choose, all in the name of happiness. Specifically, he observed that the people, quote, retain so much of their natural freedom as to have a right to retire from society, to renounce the benefits of it, to enter into another society, and their submission to the public authority of the state. Do not oblige them to continue in it longer than they find it will conduce to their happiness, which they have a natural right to promote. The natural right remains with every man, and he cannot justly be deprived of it by any civil authority." Unquote. This is quite a bold statement, and the colonists took it seriously. After all, we declared independence. As the disputes between the colonies and the mother country intensified, this idea that a person could leave if unhappy was transformed into the idea that the only reason to submit to government was to ensure the promotion of happiness. Minister Gad Hitchcock, in an election sermon in 1774, remember, this is at the height of Boston resistance to British oppression, addressed the idea. Hitchcock was the first pastor of the newly organized Congregational Church in Pembroke on the outskirts of Boston. Ironically, in his audience was General Thomas Gage, the newly appointed governor of Massachusetts, and shiploads of British troops. They were in charge of oppressing the colonists. Talk about a hostile audience. That did not deter Pastor Hitchcock to declare, quote, The great end of a ruler's exaltation is the happiness of the people over whom he presides, and his promoting it the sole ground of their submission to him. Unquote. On the cusp of the revolution, the idea that the happiness of the people was the justification for government had gained great ground. In 1776, John Adams first wrote a letter to two North Carolina delegates in the Continental Congress, which was later transformed into a longer pamphlet and published about how the new state government should be organized. It had the pithy title, Thoughts on Government Applicable to the Present State of the American Colonies in a Letter from a Gentleman to His Friend. Uh, we're just going to use Thoughts on Government. Thoughts on government was enormously influential in the development of American constitutional law, both in the states and in the federal government. Adams unequivocally argued that happiness was the very purpose of government. Quote, we ought to consider what is the end of government before we determine which is the best form. Upon this point, all speculative politicians will agree that the happiness of society is the end of government as all divines and moral philosophers will agree that the happiness of the individual is the end of man. From this principle, it will follow that the form of government which communicates ease, comfort, security, or in one word, happiness, to the greatest number of persons, and in the greatest degree, is the best." Unquote. Thoughts on government was first drafted in February of 1776, that is not even six months before the Declaration of Independence. And at that time, 
almost everyone believed that a Republican form of government, that is when the people have the ability to elect leaders, required that the people in office have virtue, and Adams expresses much in Thoughts on Government. As such, there was a conjoined expectation. Governments were formed to promote happiness, and the government, as well as the people who voted for them, were to be virtuous. Several years later, Joseph Lathrop, the pastor of the Congregational Church of West Springfield, Massachusetts, you know, he had been the pastor for over 60 years and was considered one of the leading ministers in New England, expressed this understanding when he wrote, quote, There is nothing more evident from reason, revelation, and common experience than the tendency of virtue to the happiness and the tendency of vice to the misery of mankind both in private and social life. But while this is generally acknowledged in speculation, it is much disregarded in practice." Unquote. He further explained that vice or licentiousness, which is the abuse of liberty, would cause dreadful consequences in government. Quote, if pride, selfishness, and the love of pleasure reign among all ranks, if injustice, fraud, idleness, luxury, oppression, and other vices generally prevail, there is no need of special judgments to make them miserable, and no need of a spirit of prophecy to foresee their destruction. Every man, therefore, as he regards his own and the general happiness, is bound to practice virtue himself and promote it among others." Unquote. In fact, Pastor Lathrop warned in the wake of the revolution that luxury, vice, and licentiousness was now the greatest threat to liberty. Quote, we have seen the time when the people of this country, alarmed at the dangers which threaten them from a usurping and invading power, could unite in arms for the common defense. They thought no expense too great to be incurred, no sacrifice too dear to be made, that they might rescue their trembling liberties from the devouring jaws of oppression. Our social happiness is now in danger from another quarter, from the prevalence of vice and impiety, from the increasing luxury, extravagance, selfishness, and injustice. Let us exert ourselves with the same united ardor and extirpate this internal enemy as we have to repel a foreign enemy. And we may hope for equal success, and success in this attempt will give our liberties a firmer establishment and a more permanent security than all the successes of war." Unquote. Come on, they just don't write like that anymore. So the idea here is that the pursuit of happiness is not a blank check to engage in a corrupt, hedonistic lifestyle. It should be tempered by virtue and honor and self-responsibility. But we are jumping ahead of the story. On July 2nd, 1776, the Second Continental Congress had passed a resolution declaring that the colonies were free and independent states. The Congress had appointed a committee of five statesmen to draft a declaration for the Congress explaining why independence was necessary. Constituting that quintet were John Adams of Massachusetts, who was dubbed the Colossus of Independence, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, leading patriot, inventor, legislator, and diplomat, who was by far the most famous American alive. Robert Livingston, a political figure and attorney in New York. He was referred to as the chancellor for a top legal position he held for years. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, the only person to sign the Continental Association from the First Continental Congress, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the United States Constitution and Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, a young Virginian legislator who had written an eloquent defense of the colonies called A Summary View of the Rights of British America in 1774. Jefferson attempted to defer to Adams to draft the declaration, but Adams insisted that Jefferson draft it. Adams explained to Jefferson why Jefferson was required to draft it. Quote, reason first, you're a Virginian and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason second, I'm obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Reason third, 
you can write 10 times better than I can, unquote. Jefferson relented and forged the first draft. Now up to now, we've not really dwelled on the drafting process or authorship of particular phrases. In the end, who wrote what is not particularly important when the Declaration of Independence was adopted unanimously by the Second Continental Congress, Franklin and Adams had made a few but important improvements on Jefferson's draft, and then the Congress revised it significantly. Why I'm dwelling here on the drafting process is because Jefferson's initial draft specifically referred to the pursuit of happiness as an unalienable right, and it was untouched by the committee and untouched by Congress. And yet, it was truly revolutionary. As we have discussed earlier, the colonists were originally fighting for the rights of Englishmen. But by the time of the Declaration of Independence, they transformed their fight into one for the unalienable rights of all of mankind. A singular transfiguration occurred with happiness. Jefferson purposely did not use property, he used happiness. And he purposefully did not say that the people had an unalienable right to be happy. Not at all. It was the right to pursue happiness. Jefferson's phrase echoes that of Lord Kames, who we discussed earlier, but clearly it was materially different. And Kames wrote over a century before Jefferson. Much closer to 1776, in fact, just a couple years before the Declaration, James Wilson, a leading revolutionary and constitutional thinker from Pennsylvania, an eventual Supreme Court justice, wrote, quote, All men are by nature equal and free. No one has a right to any authority over another without his consent. All lawful government is founded on the consent of those who are subject to it. Such consent was given with a view to ensure and to increase the happiness of the governed above what they could enjoy in an independent and unconnected state of nature. The consequence is that the happiness of the society is the first law of every government." Unquote. Here Wilson again reiterated the idea that happiness of society was the goal of government, but nothing about the pursuit of happiness as an unalienable right. Literally just weeks before the Declaration was written, George Mason moved along Wilson's idea into a much closer rendition to Jefferson's draft. Mason drafted Virginia's Declaration of Rights, which was adopted on June 12, 1776. Quote, that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain inherent rights, of which they cannot, by any compact, derive or divest their posterity, among which are the enjoyment of life and liberty, with the means of acquiring and possessing property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety." Unquote. Now Jefferson disclaimed having referred to any documents when he wrote the Declaration. But he also stated that he was not intending to create anything new. He was just distilling American thought at the time. For the most part, this was undoubtedly true. But here, in this phrase of the pursuit of happiness, he undoubtedly tipped the scales. The idea that government was instituted for happiness was implied in the idea of the social compact. We've gone through all that. But in the Declaration, the pursuit of happiness became an unalienable right endowed by God in man and to be protected by government. The change, although seemingly subtle, was monumental. Professor Gilbert Chenard was born in France, but immigrated to America and became a towering figure in academia. He taught at Brown, the University of California at Berkeley, John Hopkins, and Princeton, and published over 40 books and edited hundreds of articles, reviews, and other books. His European background provided him insights some Americans might have missed. He explained what Jefferson had wrought, and I apologize now for the length of the quote, but we all know Dave has got a great voice, and the good professor just captures it so very well. We cannot dismiss the phrase pursuit of happiness, however, without mentioning a feature which seems to have escaped most Americans of political philosophy, probably because it has become such an integral part of American life that it's not even noticed. I do not believe that any other state paper in any nation had ever proclaimed so emphatically and with such finality that one of the essential functions of government is to make man happy, or that one of his essential natural rights is 
the pursuit of happiness. This was more than a new principle of government. It was a new principle of life, which was thus proposed and officially endorsed. The most that could be asked from governments of the old world was to promote virtue and maintain justice, honor, amor patrae, and fear were the essential principles on which rested the governments described by Montesquieu. But in spite of the eternal and unquenchable thirst for happiness in the hearts of every man, what European, what Frenchman, particularly, could openly and officially maintain that the pursuit of happiness was a right, and that the happiness could be reached and truly enjoyed. This quest of happiness has been the main preoccupation of the French philosophers during the 18th century. But in spite of their philosophical optimism, they were too thoroughly imbued with pessimism ever to think that was possible to be happy. The most they could hope for was to become less unhappy. The whole Christian civilization had been built on the idea that happiness is neither desirable nor obtainable in this veil of tears and affliction, but a compensation of Christianity offered eternal life and eternal bliss. The Declaration of Independence, on the contrary, placed human life on a new axis by maintaining that happiness is a natural right of the individual and the whole end of government. To be sure, the idea was not original with Jefferson. It had been mentioned more than once in official or semi-official documents. It was in James Wilson, as in the Bill of Rights, but I cannot quite conceive that such a formula could have originated in New England. I cannot conceive either that it could have been proclaimed at the date anywhere except in the new country where the pioneer spirit dominated, where men felt that they could live without being crowded or hampered by a fierce competition, traditions, and ironbound social laws. Unquote. In short, at only at such a time and place as America in July of 1776 could the vague idea of happiness finally be recognized as an unalienable right to pursue happiness. In the wake of the Declaration of Independence, several states incorporated the right to the pursuit of happiness, or something akin to it, in their state constitutions. Embedded in this idea was the right not just to own property, but the right to choose an education, an occupation, and to live as one pleases. With regard to property rights, there was a right to acquire and dispose of it, to invent and to be creative and have intellectual pursuits, and to have your new ways of doing things protected. Think of copyright, trademark, and patent laws. In his first inaugural address, which is truly a magnificent speech, and we will explore over the course of this podcast series, Jefferson pointed out many advantages that the people of the United States possessed. And among those he mentioned were the, quote, equal right to use our own faculties and the acquisition of our own industry, unquote. In fact, Americans had purposefully refused to allow nobility to take hold of the new nation. They rejected the idea of European hereditary ordering of society. Instead, each person was to stand on their own, on their own character, hard work and guts, as free men and women, not the pawns of a hereditary aristocracy or the victims of an immovable social structure. Jefferson also observed that the people needed, quote, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government, and this is necessary to close the circle of our felicities. Unquote. Felicities, by the way, means happiness or bliss. So there you have it. A good government allows people to pursue their own way in the world. Before he was president, Jefferson was charged with the revision of the laws of Virginia in light of the Revolution. He worked several monumental changes, any of which would have been worthy to be acclaimed in history, and they are all overshadowed by his role drafting the Declaration of Independence and in his presidency. 
Two of the changes he made in Virginia law directly supported the unalienable right to pursue happiness. In particular, he abolished two major antiquated property rights of inheritance that prevented the free distribution of property among the society. They were vestiges of the feudal system. At his suggestion, Virginia eliminated entails, which basically prohibited the selling of certain property, and it also eliminated primogeniture, which provided that the first son basically inherited all of his father's land. These changes allowed for the acquisition of real estate so long as there is a willing buyer and a seller. In a way, we consider natural in a market economy. Before then, a feudal system of real estate locked in much of the land. In essence, Jefferson was paving the way for the free market society in capitalism. Pretty ironic for a privileged plantation owner who depended on slave labor. In fact, this ethos of the pursuit of happiness, that men should be free to pursue their own occupation and acquire property as possible, was clearly contrary to slavery, and Lincoln pointed it out in a wonderful speech in 1860. Quote, I am glad to see that a system of labor prevails in New England, under which laborers can strike when they want to, where they want to, and are not tied down and obliged to work whether you pay them or not. I like the system which lets a man quit when he wants to, and wish it might prevail everywhere. One of the reasons I am opposed to slavery is just here. What is the true condition of the laborer? I take it that it is best for all to leave such men free to acquire property as fast as he can." Lincoln also explained that the idea of the pursuit of happiness was the essence of a meritocracy that it allows the poor to become wealthy and the wealthy to become poor based on what they do, not to whom they were born. It lifts away the oppression of government that dictates how you will live life regardless of your talent, merit, and hard work. This social mobility is a key feature of America, which was novel in human history. Lincoln continued, quote, some will get wealthy. I don't believe in a law to prevent man from getting rich. It would do more harm than good. So while we do not propose any war upon capital, we do wish to allow the humblest man an equal chance to get rich with everyone else. When one starts poor, as most do in the race of life, free society is such that he knows he can better his condition. He knows that there is no fixed condition of labor for his whole life." As we all know, Lincoln was born poor and struggled hard to reach his station as a successful lawyer, legislator, and then president. This was unthinkable anywhere else in the world, and that pretty much is the truth today. Lincoln reflected on his personal experience. Quote, I am not ashamed to confess that 25 years ago, I was a hired laborer, nailing rails, at work on a flat boat, just what might happen to any poor man's son. I want every man to have the chance and I believe a black man is entitled to it, in which he can better his condition, when he can look forward and hope to be hired laborer this year and next, work for himself afterwards, and finally hire men to work for him." Lincoln was a living example of what we now call the American dream. This thinking of Lincoln and Jefferson is second nature to us now. There's no question that the ability to pursue happiness does not necessarily mean that any particular person will achieve happiness. Life can be cruel at times. But that is not the point. The point is actually that you even have the opportunity to try. That idea has been denied in most societies throughout human history. And clearly America was the first to recognize the pursuit of happiness as a self-evident unalienable right. Longtime listeners know that we can't get away with an episode like this without contrasting America to other places and times. If you cross-apply what we have learned about in ancient Rome, feudal Europe, the ancient regime in France, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, the Soviet Union, and communist China, we already know that there was no recognition of the pursuit of happiness. Quite the opposite. This episode, we will highlight some new examples. The first two are similar but distinct from the caste system in India, which we have addressed previously in our episode about equality. Walking us through these two caste systems is Michael Skanechny, my dear friend, someone who spent years in foster care doing God's work. 
He now has his own podcast called Be Reasonable by Mike Gerard. So I suggest strongly that you listen to it. Skin, please present your segment. Thanks, Judge. And yeah, I did that work. So, you know, if you talk to him, can you let him know I need a job? All right, let's get to it. Sri Lanka is an island nation located in the Indian Ocean near the southern tip of India. Its largest two ethnic groups are the Sinhalese and the Tamils. Unlike India, which is 95% Hindu, about 70% of the population is Buddhist, but they still have a caste system. The UN Subcommission in Protection of Human Rights' working paper on work and descent-based discrimination explains the situation. Quote, In Sri Lanka, there are two caste systems, one for the Selenese and the other for the Tamils. Although they both have their origin in India, the Sinhalese caste system is not linked to the Hindu Varna. It has an aspect of feudal society which divided people according to descent and blood, or according to their hereditary roles and functions. The caste system was a secular hierarchy. The caste of Rodias, or Rodi, meaning filth, was from the very early times. Many legends surround their origin, all agreeing that they were banished for a heinous crime and condemned to a life of begging, or more accurately, soliciting for alms. They were denied land and work and subjected to many disadvantages and degrading treatment. Unquote. Sri Lankan discrimination can also apply to Christians, Muslims, and other minority groups. Like the caste system in India, which subcaste you are born into dictates what you can do with much of your life. As an example, the list of the low country or southern caste for the Sinhalese include different castes for one, cinnamon tappers, soldiers and weavers, two, traditional fishermen, naval warriors, seafaring traders, boat builders, carpenters, and pioneering planters, three, traditional soldiers and toddy tappers, Four, artisans with many subcategories. Five, traditional cultivators, land workers, and herdsmen. Six, merchants, confectioners, military personnel. Seven, tom-tom beaters. That's traditional drummers. Eight, potters. Nine, tailors. And it goes on and on. There's even one for gypsies. Now, all of these castes lock people into occupations for life. The people of Sri Lanka have no ability to pursue happiness other than within a very narrow tunnel dictated to them at birth. Now, let's go west across the Arabian Sea to Africa. There lies the proud, historically important, and impressive civilization of Ethiopia. Completely unconnected with Hinduism or Sri Lanka, Ethiopia also has a deeply entrenched caste system. Ethiopia has several different ethnic groups, such as the Oromo, the Amhara, and the Gamo, and they all impose castes upon their people. A study published by the University of South Florida of the Gamo people summarized its stifling domination of life. Quote, First, the Gamo have a rigid social structure that correlates the different social strata to traditional occupations. Second, the Gamo hierarchically grade people into three caste groups, citizen farmers and weavers, potters and iron workers, and leather workers. Third, farmers do not consider leather artisans full members of the Gamo society, and as such, they do not allow artisans to hold public office. Fourth, the farmers associate leather artisans with concepts of impurity or pollution and restrict their social interactions with leather artisans. Fifth, the leather artisans speak a ritual language or argot. Sixth, membership in a specific caste is ascribed by birth and there is no social mobility. Seventh, individuals do not marry outside their caste group. Until recently, artisan caste groups were denied access to change their social, economic, and political standing in society. The discrimination against them and their abject poverty is profound." Unquote. To further illustrate the point, 
One case study of Jewish Ethiopians reveals that the caste system forced them into one occupation, blacksmiths. Somewhat akin to medieval Jews being forced into banking in Europe because Christians believed that lending money with interest was a sin, the Jews of Ethiopia were forced into blacksmithing because no one else was allowed to do it. Blacksmithing was considered a lowly occupation associated with sorcery. Being forced into that occupation, it reinforced the social isolation of Jews from the larger society. But in an ironic twist, this oppression allowed for Jewish culture to survive and avoid assimilation into the broader society. Now, like India and Sri Lanka, Ethiopians are trapped in a stratified social structure that cripples the ability to pursue happiness. So there you have it. One way of life that has affected millions of people for centuries completely rejects the idea of the pursuit of happiness. I mean, let's be thankful for where we live today. Judge Warren, back to you. Thank you. Michael Gerard Skonechny. As you might imagine, a caste system is definitely not the only way to block the pursuit of happiness. Another example, which Michael Gerard and I vividly remember, but may be too far back in time for all of our listeners to remember, is South Africa and apartheid. To do so, we have another special guest who absolutely remembers this as well. Brent Bassett, a learned man in his own right, will take it away with Brent's brief. Thanks, Judge Warren. Always happy to be here, even if what I have the pleasure to present are just some of the worst regimes in world history. On the other hand, it makes me appreciate being an American. South Africa is perhaps the most European-like nation in Africa. Dutch settlers landed in 1652 and established a colony. Eventually, they lost out to the British. Regardless of which European imperialist nation was in power, racial segregation ruled the country. This was mostly done through custom and government policies, but in 1948, the Nationalist Party won the elections. The Nationalist Party was composed of Dutch descendants, known as Afrikaners, which platform was to impose the strict racist legal regime separating whites and non-whites. Quickly after they won in 1948, as Alex H. Hippel explains, quote, the maze of laws and regulations which afflicted the lives of urban Africans was steadily enlarged and their severity increased, unquote. Of course, non-whites had no political rights. Non-whites could not vote and had no rights of petition, press, assembly, or speech. South Africa was what political scientists call a Heronvolk democracy, which is a democracy only for one race in charge of politics and everyone else is excluded. The system was called apartheid, from which the Dutch literally means separateness plus hood. Listen to the word, and it makes sense. Apartheid. Now this is all pretty amazing when you think of the demographics of South Africa. At the time apartheid was implemented, only about 20% of the population was white. About 68% were black, and the remaining 12% were Indians, Asians, and mixed race. Often, a Heronvolk democracy involves a racial majority oppressing racial minorities, but South Africa turned this formula on its head. The small minority oppressed the massive majority. South Africa, a country study, summarizes how the white minority went about trying to maintain and actually strengthen their power. Quote, apartheid legislation authorized the reservation of many skilled jobs and managerial positions for whites. Qualified blacks were legally excluded from most senior level jobs. But black education standards were so inferior to those for whites that few blacks were qualified for well-paid jobs. Even in equivalent job categories, blacks received lower wages than whites. Although white workers were divided in their racial attitudes throughout the apartheid era, they often opposed benefits for black workers that could threaten their own economic standing. Unquote. To ensure that non-whites did not compete with them for economically lucrative jobs, the government passed laws that excluded non-whites from labor unions, unemployment insurance, or any labor protections at all. Apartheid also simply strangled the ability of non-whites to enjoy not only superior job opportunities, but in marriage, recreation, travel, and culture. 
Carlos Graydon explained what the white-dominated government was up to. Quote, the ultimate aim of white rulers was to force non-whites to provide seasonal, cheap, and abundant labor for farms, mines, and other sectors, while keeping economic and political power in their own hands. Segregation in South Africa stood out for the range and extent of its discriminatory legislation, which affected every possible sphere of life, examples being work, education, health, transport, recreation, politics, sexual relationships. Among this legislation, the color bar resulted in job reservation for whites that excluded blacks from skilled and semi-skilled jobs, also depriving them of an adequate education. Segregation was also an ideology and a set of practices seeking to legitimize social difference and economic inequality. Core elements of this segregation, such as the exclusion of blacks from skilled work, especially if it involved supervisory functions over whites, or the system of large-scale oscillating labor migration, were determined by custom as well as legislative bars." Unquote. As reported by Heppel, the system of apartheid was intended to, quote, create a society in which the African majority is pegged to poverty and servitude, unquote. After years of resistance, international sanctions, and pressure from the West, in the 1990s, the government ended apartheid and allowed for free elections. The history of South Africa is very rich and complex, and perhaps a great subject for a new podcast, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. But for our purposes, it illustrates centuries of stifling the pursuit of happiness for a majority of millions. Judge Warren, back to you. Thanks, Brent. A bodacious Brent's brief, if I may say so myself. Our last example is, unfortunately, one that is alive and kicking today. You might think the caste systems in apartheid are good enough to explore this topic. Well, you might remember the last episode where I said it can always get worse. Well, here we are again. Unless you are living under a rock, you have heard about North Korea and its tyrannical communist regime, a true relic from the Cold War. And to explain this relic, we have brought back a relic of our own. Michael Gerard Skin is back for his second segment, Skin Segment. Please take it away. Relic? Hey, I'm not that old. I mean, there was that time I met Roosevelt, and I mean Teddy Roosevelt, but yeah, that's for another day. Eh, seriously though, we need just a tad bit of humor before we explore North Korea. Now, North Korea is a totalitarian dictatorship with a cult of personality that rivals anything in modern times. This cult of personality, unlike the Soviets, Chinese, or Nazis, is hereditary. They have had three male dictators in a row. The current dictator, uh, excuse me, supreme leader, is Kim Jong-un, who took power after the death of his father, Kim Jong-il, who had been dictator, excuse me again, the supreme leader, at the time of his death. Now, Kim Jong-il's father was Kim Il-sung, who was the first dictator, uh, the original great leader of North Korea at the time of his death. Now, their cult of personality puts to shame Stalin, Mao, Hitler, and any other dictator you can think of. To perpetuate the rule of the supreme leader, the Communist Party there has perpetuated and strengthened a class system called the Songbun. This system of classification took full measure in the wake of the Korean War. On May 30th, 1957, each person was assigned a loyal classification. If a person or his or her family sacrificed for the fatherland during the Korean War, they were favored. Those who didn't sacrifice were returned prisoners of war, or those who viewed sympathetically to South Korea were removed to the northern mountainous provinces. Just like the caste system, or even the estate system of the French Ancien Régime, these classifications are inherited. Kim Catherine Angstro Doom explains the devastatingly important nature of these classifications. Quote, the process of determining a person's status is not transparent, and North Korean citizens cannot challenge the results. At birth, a baby's Songbun classification system is assigned 
after an examination is conducted on their parent's status. The consequences began early in school, where grades were determined by Songbun and not performance. Songbun's controls every aspect of their lives. What jobs they can do after school, to their ability to travel, how much food or health care they receive, and even who they can marry. The United Nations Commission found that the Songbun system leads to structural discrimination whereby generations become locked into disadvantage and social mobility is not possible. Once assigned the baby status, it is theirs for life, barring any acts of wrongdoing or, in limited cases, they rise to a higher status. Losing status is much easier. All it takes is a political crime as determined by the state, unquote. North Korea is almost like a cartoon, like a caricature of the worst aspects of communism, totalitarianism, and cults of personality all wrapped up into one. It's something you might read about in a novel by George Orwell or in a comic book, except it's not fiction, and it ain't no joke. Famine, executions, oppression, it's all there for the world to see. And the pursuit of happiness? A farce. I mean, for all of our faults, and we have many, we're about as good as it gets. Back to you, Judge Warren. Thanks for another spectacular skin segment, Michael Gerard. Back to America. We rejected feudalism, the ancient regime, Roman stratification, caste systems, and communist totalitarianism. The hair-invoked democracy? That we punted, much to our shame and we will return to it more than once. But for all of our faults, unlike any other nation in world history, in 1776, we declared that as a self-evident truth that all men had the inalienable right to pursue happiness. President Theodore Roosevelt laid out the American understanding of the pursuit of happiness back in 1912. Now, Roosevelt was a bigger-than-life character. He was a big game hunter, climbed the Matterhorn, served in the New York Assembly, became police commissioner in New York City and fought corruption, was a prolific writer. He was the assistant secretary of the Navy and ended up running the place. He quit that post to wrangle up a volunteer troop to fight in Cuba and led the charge up San Juan Heights to a glorious victory, became governor of New York, then vice president, then president, retired, and then ran as a third party candidate for president. Plus, he looks really cool on Mount Rushmore. One of his many talents was to cut to the chase in simple yet powerful ways. In connection with the pursuit of happiness, he did so brilliantly in a letter in 1912, which we will use here as our closing argument. Quote, In this country, we cannot permanently succeed except upon the basis of treating each man on his worth as a man. We cannot fulfill our high mission among the nations of the earth, we can do lasting good to ourselves and to all mankind only if we act that the humblest among us, so long as he behaves in straight and decent fashion, has guaranteed to him under the law his right to life, to liberty, to protection from injustice, his right to enjoy the fruits of his honest labor, and his right of the pursuit of happiness in his own way, so long as he does not trespass on the rights of others." Our only safe motto is all men up and not some men down. For us to oppress any class of our fellow citizens is not only wrong to others, but hurtful to ourselves. For in the long run, such action is no more detriment to the oppressed than to those who think that they temporarily benefit by the oppression. Surely no man can quarrel with these principles exactly as they should be applied among white men without regard to their difference of creed or birthplace or social station, without regard to whether they are rich men or poor men, men who work with their hands or men who work with their brains. So they should be applied among all men without regard to their color of their skins. Unquote. Granted, that was a long quote, but worth every word. When Teddy Roosevelt was born, they broke the mold. Let us hope we can fulfill his call for securing the unalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. 
Some key takeaways from this episode. Before 1776, no government embraced the founding first principle that all men had an inalienable right to pursue happiness. Although happiness was a theoretical ideal for some governments, it was never an express goal of the government. Feudalism, the ancient regime, caste systems, and other forms of government all served to block the pursuit of happiness before 1776. Although the English had some freedoms, they were viewed as the rights of Englishmen only, and they were not shared with all citizens throughout the realm. For the first time, the Declaration of Independence declared as a self-evident truth that all men are endowed by their Creator with the unalienable right of the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is more than just being able to own property. It includes the right to acquire and sell property, to pursue your own occupation and career, and to live your life the way you want, so long as you don't hurt others while doing so. It should be tempered by virtue and self-responsibility. Governments do not give us the unalienable right to pursue happiness. It is bestowed upon us from the Creator and nature and nature's God. Since 1776, caste systems, communist regimes, apartheid, and other governments and societies have suffocated and denied the right to pursue happiness. As Americans, we are very fortunate to be blessed to live in a time and place such as this that is dedicated to the unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. Fellow patriots, thank you for your time. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, in particular, quote, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, unquote. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. You can find lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, on our Patriot Week Foundation page, LinkedIn, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you're interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.